So we're going to be uh, continuing our Q&A series this morning. Uh, We've been on this series uh, pretty much all summer now, and uh, we've hit some various topics. And today the question that came in is this. In a politically correct society, how do we address the issue of homosexuality in the workplace with our friends, family, and neighbors? Okay, so in a politically correct society, how do we address the issue of homosexuality in the workplace with our friends, family, and neighbors? When this question came in, I'm going to be very honest with you, I just went, <sighs> just took a deep breath and said, maybe I'll ignore this one. I'll be honest, that's, that was my first thought. Uh, but I, I couldn't just let it go. I believe the Spirit of God was prompting me uh, to study this uh, issue to wrestle with um, this issue over what uh, many in the body of Christ are saying today um, and to pray through this issue uh, because ultimately um, my heart is to glorify God and uh, it was not easy. I'll just say it was not easy um, but um, here it is and here we are. Now, after praying, I came to the realization quite quickly that you know, in a 30-minute talk, There's just no way we can address this issue in its fullness. Um, And so what I've done for this morning's talk was narrow uh, the talk down to the specifics of the question. Okay, namely that the question was asking in a politically correct society, how do we address the issue? How do we as the body of Christ, how do we as the church, how do we as followers of Jesus um, address this issue uh, in our cultural context. And so that's where I'm going to be focusing my talk this morning. Um, and so, so the sermon will be divided into three subsections. Uh, the first section I'm going to be talking about political correctness, what that is, um, and what we need to know about that, that aspect of our culture. The second section I'm going to be talking about what the, what the Bible says about homosexuality. And then finally, in the last section, I'm going to talk about how we as Christians should address this issue with those outside our faith community. Those who, uh, for instance, have a secular worldview as opposed to a Christian worldview, whether it be in our workplace, our neighborhood, our family, and so on. Okay? Now, before I dive in, I'm going to make a, like a preamble statement, and that is that there are three, generally speaking, there are three different views in the body of Christ today regarding this issue. There's three different views. First is the affirming view, which is the perspective that embraces same-sex unions in the church and has the belief that homosexuality is not a sin. The second is the non-affirming view, which is the perspective that condemns same-sex unions in the church and believes that homosexuality is a sin. And I'll say that on the extreme end, the non-affirming view elevates homosexuality uh, above other sins. Whether they knowingly do it or not, that's what happens in the extreme end of the non-affirming view. There is also a third way, and the third way uh, is the perspective that is welcoming but non-affirming of same-sex unions in the church and has the belief that homosexuality is a sin among other sins and is not unique in itself. Okay, and so I just want to... say that I'm coming from a non-affirming view, a a traditional point of view, with the propensity to seek out the third way, okay? So I'm coming from a place, you know, through what I've learned in 
uh, school and so on from a traditional stance, from a non-affirming view with this uh, uh, posture towards this third way. And I say it that way because I know that the third way is messy. It's, it's messy. It gets us into all sorts of uh, situations and conversations and arguments and struggles and disagreements. I heard a story about a Christian couple, a uh, married couple who had kids and they, you know, they're Christians, they went to church, they held the traditional view of marriage and the non-affirming view of homosexuality. They were very vocal about this until they found out that their son was um, homosexual. Uh, he came out uh, and that... Um, that forced them to rethink their position, uh, really wrestle with that because they had to be around their son. I mean, they, they had to. <laughs> it, was, it was their son, right? And they had to wrestle and pray and wrestle and pray over this issue. And so what they've done, they've moved towards this third-way perspective. And because of that, some people uh, would, would accuse them of being too liberal now. It's like, oh, uh, they've become liberals, Whereas others would say, well, you're not progressive enough. And so there's this tension with this third way. There's a lot of tension. And so this tension uh, is going to be uh, in my talk this morning. And so there may be those of us here this morning who are on opposite sides of the spectrum, whether you're an affirming uh, your view is affirming or non-affirming. I'm not sure uh, where you stand, but there may be those who are on opposite sides. Well, what I want to say to you this morning is that uh, my talk may bring some comfort, a measure of comfort, but also a measure of discomfort for both sides, okay, because of this tension. And so I just wanted to say that before we uh, begin on this topic. Let's pray. Phew. Let's pray. Father, we just... Uh, I couldn't help but notice our songs this morning. I, I, I just, I trust that it was by your Spirit's leading. We sang of your great love for us. That you are good and your love endures forever. Father, we also want to know what it is that your heart says about this issue, Lord. And, and that's not as easy as it sounds, Lord. But we need your help. We ask for your spirit to come and help us to, to open our hearts and minds to what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It can be difficult for us to recognize culture. In fact, it's almost impossible to recognize our culture while it's in play. Do you think a fish knows that it's wet? Have you ever thought of that? If a fish knows if it's wet, right? Probably not. In fact, of course not. Wet is all it knows. It's in the water. There's no tension between water and anything other than water. That's what it knows. That's the fish's culture until it comes out of the water. Then there's a tension. Then it realizes, oh... I've been living in water. There's something called no water, right? The water is the fish's culture. Culture is extremely important to know, especially for Christians, because we're called to make disciples of 
all nations, to be salt and light in this world. We have to know the cultural patterns of life of those we are ministering to. When missionaries are sent overseas, they learn the culture of the the nation that they're going to go to. That's a part of their training. They have to, right? So, for instance, if someone's being sent into a Muslim country, they would learn about Islam and Islamic culture so that when they go there, they can find ways to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ through the culture rather than lashing out saying Islam is wrong and that your culture is wrong. Instead of doing that, they find ways to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ through their culture, right? So the cultural studies is absolutely essential. Now, by studying Islam and being sensitive to the people who are Muslim, it doesn't mean that they're agreeing with Islam. It's simply a way of understanding how the gospel can be preached in their culture because lashing out against it will not be fruitful to do that. In Canada, it's Canadian culture to be politically correct. Now, I didn't realize the extent of this until someone pointed out just how much I apologize. Okay? I, I, I just... I didn't realize this until an American friend I had said, you know, Canadians apologize all the time for everything. What's, it, what's up with that, right? I'm like, really? Oh, sorry, I, don't, I didn't realize I did that. Oh. Right? <laughs> Canadian culture. Now, I realize this a bit in Korea. When you're walking down the street and you're in downtown Seoul, Population's 10 million. You're going to bump into somebody. That's just, it happens. It's so busy. When you walk, someone will bump into you. And sometimes it's a hard bump like this, right? Uh, in Korea, they don't apologize for that. They just walk. They just, boom, boom. They just can't keep walking. Oh, oh, no sorry, nothing. It's just, that's the way it is. Grandma hit me. Oh, whoa. You know, I should say sorry to her, but she's fine, you know? So, Wow. That was like that in Korea. Now here in Canada, if you were to bump into someone or if somebody bumped into me, we would both apologize, right? Oh, sorry. No, sorry. That's, it's just uh, how we are. It's, it's a manifestation of our um, culture, our political correctness. Right? So political correctness is defined as follows. Here's two definitions that I want to give you this morning. Number one, it says this, agreeing with the idea that people should be careful to not use language or behave in a way that could offend a particular group of people. Okay? Second one, conforming to a belief that language and practices which could offend political sensibilities should be eliminated. This is a value that Canadians uphold. In Canada, we say we are accepting and affirming of all people, all cultures, all racial backgrounds, all religions, all sexual orientation and identity, we accept all. Now, we don't perfectly do that, of course, but uh, we Canadians say that we accept all people. Now, this poses a problem for Christians on the topic of homosexuality if the Christian holds to a traditional view because that threatens the cultural value of Canadians. So what ends up happening is the Christian's voice gets silenced in order to protect the greater population from being offended, right? Our views are not politically correct. Now, because of this, it puts tremendous pressure on the church. Tremendous pressure. And that pressure, I believe partly the pressure is the reason why the church 
is so divided on this issue. There's views that go in both directions. And because of this pressure, we'll either fight or flight. We'll have a fight or flight response. We'll fight it or we'll run from it. Okay? The church fights it by uh, quite aggressively, actually. I don't know if we see it as much in Canada as we do in the, in the States, but, um, I mean, there's, there's billboards, pickets, and all sorts of things. Soapbox preachers that go to uh, pride parades and tell everyone they're going to hell. And this kind of thing happens. It, it does happen. Um, again, I'm not sure if what, what extent it happens in Canada, but for sure in the States it's more prevalent than here. Um, but that's how the church fights it. Another way the church fights it is by fighting for it, by affirming it and fighting against the traditional stance. Okay? So both are fighting. And the other position is uh, to stay silent right, and complacent about it because the biblical view is offensive to people in Canada. It forces us to hide and create a bubble for ourselves, not reaching anyone, not talking to anyone. Right? Even the name of Jesus, oh, it might offend them, so I just won't say anything. Well, the problem with that is that we are not effectively reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're called to make disciples. We're called to, for the Great Commission to be our, our priority. But we don't do that. There must be a way for us to uphold the word of God while being effective ministers of the gospel in the social context we live in. So that said, let's look at what the scriptures say about homosexuality. The Bible has 1,189 chapters. It has 30,000 plus verses. Of those verses, 12 talk about homosexuality. Of the 12, there's five that deal with it head on. Okay, and the five verses are Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20, verse 13, Romans 1, 26 to 28, you can put a star on that if you're writing down notes because that is really the, the clearest teaching that we have in Scripture is Romans 1. Romans, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 and 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 11. So I'm not going to read each of those. I'll just read a couple of them. Uh, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. Okay, so from the Old Testament, Leviticus 18, 22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Okay, Romans 1, 26 to 28 says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, so one from the old, one from the new. Now, some scholars and Churches hold to the view that because of the lack of verses on this topic, okay, again, there's 30,000 plus verses, only five talk about it. Because there's a lack of it, um, uh, there's no conclusive evidence that homosexuality is wrong, okay? Affirming churches would argue using these same verses and saying that, well, it's not really talking about homosexuality of the consenting relationship kind, so two adults in a consensual relationship. It's not talking about that. The Bible's talking about, uh, for instance, pederasty, which is a, an older male and a, a boy or, or something like that. That's what the Bible's talking about. It's not talking about consensual relationship. 
Now, I'm not going to really go into the details of the language because it can go... It's very technical. Um, but one thing that the Affirming Church does say is, uh, and that's where I want to talk about this morning, is that we should treat the topic of homosexuality the same way we treat the topic of women and slaves. Okay, that's one of the key arguments from the Affirming Church. In other words, the Bible talks very negatively according to our 21st century culture the Bible talks very negatively about women and slaves. Um, but in many churches uh, today, including ours, we uphold gender equality and the abolition of slavery. Right? We look at scriptures and conclude that some of what it says is bound by the culture of the day, right? the ancient Near Eastern culture of the Old Testament, the Greco-Roman culture of the New Testament. Right? We say that, well, um, the Bible is uh, some of the things that the Bible says are cultural. It's just related to the culture of the day, right? And that the affirming view says that, you know, homosexuality is the same. Okay, for instance, 1 Corinthians 11. We talked about this in the Q&A series. One of my talks was called Headship and Head Coverings. How many of you remember that? You were here for that, right? Head Coverings. We talked about head coverings. Um, there are churches today that still adopt the use of head coverings in church. Um, and we discussed this topic and we concluded that the head covering talk was, was a cultural element, that we are not bound by that today, um, that it was for that culture in that day. Okay? And so um, to say that homosexuality is the same, I would argue that it's uh, not the same. While the Bible holds cultural elements, it also holds transcultural truth. Okay? In other words, the Bible has things that are true for just certain cultures, but it also holds truths that are true for all time. And to find out how we discern the difference, we're going to have to do some digging. And so let's do some digging this morning. Um, and I'm going to show you a verse, Deuteronomy 21, and it's the topic of women. Um, Deuteronomy 21, verse 10 to 13, it says this, okay? When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her home to your house, you shall sh she shall shave her head and pare her nails and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother in a, for a full month. After that you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. Now, when we read this verse, with our 21st century culture, our mind freaks out. It's like, what? What are you talking about? Is that in God's Word? What? It's brutal. But for the ancient Near Eastern culture, this was progressive. For them, when they hear this teaching, they're like, really? That's being a bit nice, isn't it? Okay? Because in the ancient Near, Near Eastern culture, you know what? We see this even in, like, closer to our time now. When nations go to war and overtake another nation, women were considered spoils of war. That happened not even a few hundred... I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it even happens today in parts of the world. But it certainly happened in, in Southeast Asia. The Japanese Imperial Army, when they invited, uh, invaded China and Korea, oh yeah, they, they treated women horrifically, abused them. 
They were considered spoils of war. There was no rule against that. That's your inheritance as a soldier. And that was definitely the case in the ancient Near Eastern world. There's no dignity for the woman. There were no rights. They weren't considered the same as men. They were property. That's how women were viewed. And so God is coming into their culture and saying, listen, listen, when you go into another nation and you overtake that nation, you can't just do whatever you want. Okay? If you're going to take a woman, you're going to marry her. Which brought rights to the woman and dignity to the woman. So God was speaking an egalitarian ethic into a patriarchal culture. That's what God was doing. Moving the people incrementally towards a better way. That's what God was doing. Now today when we read the texts um, or talk about women in the Bible, in the church, the way we should view that is with that same redemptive spirit that we are to treat, that the church is to treat women and men with dignity and equality and respect. That's what the Bible affirms in that teaching. Although we may not see it that way at first, when you look at the cultural context, that's how, it's, uh, that's how it comes. When it comes to homosexuality, the verses in the Bible, they aren't redemptive compared to the surrounding cultures. In fact, they are regressive compared to the surrounding cultures. Okay? So when the Bible talks about homosexuality, it's not talking about, a prog- it's not talking about it in a progressive way, but in a regressive way. You see, homosexuality is not a new phenomenon. It's not new. If you look at Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It existed in those days, in that day. There is evidence to homosexual practice in that day. It's not a new phenomenon. So when the Bible was talking about its prohibition of homosexuality, it was being stricter. It was bringing a stricter ethic to the people. And we see this in both the Old and New Testaments we see that the Bible uh, affirms or <coughs> uh, communicates uh, homosexuality as not normal expression of sexuality. Both the ancient Near Eastern and Greco-Roman culture had homosexual practices. When you read some of the um, historical accounts on the emperors of Rome, some of the emperors of Rome had um, homosexual partners uh, if you read about Nero, he had um, male partners. And so it was a part of that culture. And the Bible was providing a stricter ethic, not a progressive ethic uh, for the people. Right? And Romans 1 talks explicitly about this uh, in verse 26 to 28. And so I'm just going to read that again. It says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done." 
Now, this passage, this passage uses the term natural relations. That men and women in the Greco-Roman world gave up natural relations. What is that? What is that talking about? Well, Genesis 1 shows natural relations. And it shows that the natural relation is between a man and a woman. Male and female. God created complementary opposites. Right? That was his natural order. In fact, when you look at Genesis 1, the whole creation has complementary opposites as its natural order. Light, dark, right? sky, land, fish, birds, male, female. Complementary opposites. That was the natural order that God created. Jesus also mentions this natural order in Matthew 19 when he defines marriage as between a male and a female and who become one flesh. So although in the case of women we see a redemptive move towards an egalitarian ethic, we do not see that same redemptive move for homosexuality. The Bible is conclusive in saying that homosexuality is not within the design of God for the proper expression of sexuality. Even scholars who hold the affirming view uh, admit that the Bible is clear on its prohibition of it. So to hold an affirming view of homosexuality in the church, one must come to that conclusion from outside of God's word. Now for those who hold a biblical view of homosexuality though, how do we communicate with those outside our faith community? How do we do that? I mentioned earlier that there is a third way perspective. The perspective of welcoming, yet not yet affirming. I believe this is the best way for us to communicate God's love, but it's not easy. It's not easy. In fact, like I said earlier, it's, it's, it's messy. It requires wrestling and praying. We truly need Jesus to show us and give us wisdom on this. I believe a good place to start, though, is to look at John chapter 8, verse 1 to 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman had been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I find the contrast between the Pharisees and Jesus shocking. Here is a woman who was caught cheating on her husband in the act of it. Even in our day today, if a man or a woman were caught in the act of committing adultery, even today, 
judgments would be hurled upon that person. I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that stones would be thrown at the person. Maybe even chairs. Shame on you. Shame. Shame on you. So the Pharisees bring this woman to Jesus. You could just imagine the shame that this woman had felt. She's being publicly shamed. That's like double shame, triple shame. So much shame. Now what she did was wrong, for sure. It wasn't right. But the Pharisees thought it was right to shame her and to stone her. You know what Jesus does? This is fascinating what Jesus does. He puts everyone into the same box as the woman. Who am I to throw a stone? Here is a woman caught in the act of adultery. The religious leaders had had an agenda. Judgment. Jesus flips everything around, puts them in the same box as the woman. Let him who is without sin among you, cast the first stone. They couldn't say anything. They couldn't say anything. Then he turns to the woman and he shows radical, radical mercy and compassion first. That was the first thing he does. Neither do I condemn you. He shows radical mercy and compassion first and then shows the better way. Go and sin no more. The truth was cloaked in radical, radical love, mercy, compassion. Church, that is how we should be with everyone around us. Homosexuality is not unique. It's like all other sin. It's a symptom of human brokenness. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 11, those two verses that were also on that list of five. Okay, when you look at 1 Corinthians 6, 8 to, 9 to 11, and 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 11, you're, you're going to see a list of sin. It's, there's a list of sin. Homosexuality is on that list. Together with covetousness, greed, gossip, gossip, lying, cheating. For those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We have to be careful how we deal with sin in general. All of these symptoms, all of these are symptoms of human brokenness. The brokenness that comes, that stems from the fall in Genesis 3. We are all broken. Humanity is broken. 
Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted. Jesus is the answer. What we need is His love. We need God's love. Now in the English word, there's one word for love. Love. I can use that word towards my wife and turn around and use it towards a cheeseburger. I love my wife, I love my cheeseburger, right? In the Greek language, there's four, four words for love. There's agape, God's love, supernatural love, unconditional. It's out of this world love. There's phileo, it's brotherly love. There's storge, there's the love a parent would have toward a child. There's eros, physical love. Okay, there's four words for love in the Greek. Although humans can express phileo, storge, and eros, it is incomplete without agape. God is the only one who can give us that love, agape love. In fact, agape love, God's love, is what we were all created to receive. Without it, we will never feel satisfied with the other three. We will constantly be searching to fill that brokenness with all sorts of things. doesn't matter whether someone is struggling with homosexuality, heterosexual sin. doesn't matter if they have a ton of friends or no friends or big families or no family, whatever. It doesn't matter. We need God's love. It's incomplete without, we are incomplete without it. And as Christians, we are carriers of that love. We carry the answer for the broken world around us. We have the answer to the love thirst all humans have. What we need to do not just on the topic of homosexuality, those who are outside of, of God, who do not know God, we need to show God's love loudly, loudly. And that's not to say we should remain silent about what the Bible says about homosexuality. But when we speak of what the Bible says without love, damage is done. Damage can be done. I mean, we've seen that. How many people get so offended by what somebody said or quoted from Scripture saying, you're going to hell because this verse here, right? That's not said out of love. said out of judgment. Just like the Pharisees when they were throwing stones at the woman. That's what we're doing when we're doing that. Of course society's going to fight back at that. Of course. That's not God's way. That wasn't Jesus' way. It wasn't at all. We need to speak the truth in love. And when we do that, Ephesians 4.15, when we do that, it has the potential to transform. How that looks, how we practically do that, I don't know the answer, church. I, I don't have the answer 
It's varied how we can do that. But one thing I can say is this. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. He was relational. He moved into people's lives. He walked with them, loved them. He ate with them. He was relational. How that looks, practically, again, not exactly sure. We need to follow in the footsteps of our rabbi and be relational, be loving, compassionate, merciful. However that may look for the church, we talked about this in the elders' meetings. We really wrestled through this issue. We were going to continue to, as a church, navigate through this. We want to live according to what Scripture uh, affirms. We want to fulfill the Great Commission. We want to see those who struggle with homosexuality, heterosexual sin, whatever. We want to see them all coming into the kingdom of God. We want to see that in this church. And we've talked about this as elders, and we're going to continue to do so. Again, I don't know how that looks. It can be messy. But may God show us as we navigate through this time in history, ministering to those with the good news that Jesus came for them and has the power to save them and show them the love that they are desperately seeking. It's God's love. We were all created for that. And we have the answer. So let's show them. Let's show everyone that love that we hold, the love of God. Let's pray. Father, I just, I just recognize that even when we talk about issues like this, Lord, that there's no resolve. I, a sermon doesn't end perfectly with the great conclusion and yes, it's a done sermon. Father, not all sermons are like that. And Father, I, I believe that um, as a church, we want to shine your light. We want to shine your glory. We want to be a part of a move of your spirit that calls people to yourself. To, the, to see those from the LGBTQ community, the every community, outside of God's community to come to know you. We want to see your glory revealed, Lord. And we know that you can move mountains and capture the hearts of those who are desperately seeking for you but know not of it. And so, God, we need your wisdom. We need your love to shine through. Help us to be like you, Jesus in showing mercy and compassion and love and while at the same time walking, praying, living according to what your word says and not straying to the left or the right. There's got to be a way where we can do both. We need your wisdom to do that, Lord. So I pray, Father, for Trinity Church and everyone here. We pray, I pray for your anointing, that your Spirit would come and enable us to minister the way Jesus does. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.